23. Can you believe we've done that many? Anyway, I'm David Smith, and tonight I'm joined once again by Mr. Jim Lamming and Alistair Yule. All right, guys? Hello. So tonight we're talking about Sinisters 1 and 2. Sinister is a found footage franchise with a twist, since we're following what happens to the person who finds the footage as well as watching it. So, hey, fittingly, I want to kick off, as I always do, by asking my co-hosts, what have you been watching lately? Jim, why don't we start with you? Not a lot, really, um, since we last recorded. But then uh, I have been watching some of the newer TV shows. Uh, The new Obi-Wan Kenobi TV show started recently, which surprisingly is brilliant so far. Uh, Yeah, um, really enjoying it. Very in-depth look at how he's dealing with what happened at the end of episode three, I suppose. Uh, he's clearly suffering a lot of trauma from his confrontation with Anakin, left him burning to death, essentially, and he's kind of keeping watch over the young Luke Skywalker at the same time. Um, luckily, we don't see too much of you know the, the young lad, because... I think that would just be pushing it a bit too far. However, we do see a fair bit of his sister in these episodes. Um, but the best thing about it so far, the latest episode to air at the moment was episode three. And it's probably no shock that we do see Darth Vader in this. And I have to say, it's probably the most intimidating and unsettling I've ever seen that character uh, in, in anything, it be it the films, the games, the books, it has never come across as so scary and unstoppable as he has done in this, and it's just made so well. It, yeah, I just couldn't take my eyes off it for the entire time I was watching. It's brilliant. I believe it's uh, Hayden Christensen's back in the, in the suit, isn't he? Yeah, he's uh, back uh, wearing that, um, although we don't have to put up with him as much as, <laughs> say, episode two, as, of course, it's James L. Jones providing the voice for Darth Vader. I'll we'll jump in quickly and um, say that well, I've not seen it yet. I'm looking forward to seeing it, but I have heard that uh, a young like, 12-year-old Princess Leia is playing a significant role in it, which, if you think about it from episode four, it would make sense that she knew Obi-Wan because yeah. she sent him the distress signal, like, come help her, he's her only hope. So that does imply that they've met before. And I think mm. this could tie in quite nicely to that uh, distress call. Yeah, it basically establishes their first meeting, well, since he left her with uh, Senator Organa, uh, who is once again in this, played by Jimmy Smith again, but just seems wildly different. But I guess it has been 20 years nearly since... Uh, Revenge of the Sith was released, and no way does that make me feel old. So moving uh, on. <laughs> of curiosity, what have you guys thought of the other Star Wars shows? I understand the Book of Boba Fett was pretty bad, right? Um, whereas everyone absolutely loves Mandalorian. I think the issue with the Boba Fett is that Boba Fett fundamentally isn't in the show. Like we get, we get, <laughs> That's a major issue with it. We get something called Boba Fett that behaves nothing like Boba Fett. I think there was a there was something that I think the writers were trying to do that fundamentally failed to come across. Hmm. They were wanting to show that Boba Fett being this um, mercenary, this hitman, like he'll go out on jobs, but nothing ever changes. And he reaches a point where enough's enough and he wants to go in a different direction. And 
other than it being said in dialogue, there's there's nothing to show this. No, and when the, your your best episodes and best parts of that series, I know what you're going to say uh, when you're not in it, it's a bit of a bad sign, isn't it? Like the first few episodes where you know we see him, what happens after he gets out of the Sarlacc and, mm-hmm. and so on, and then we get to basically the setup for the Mandalorian again. Like it, it goes from a Boba Fett series to just essentially the Mandalorian series. I forget what the count is, but there's at least two to three episodes that focus on the Mandalorian and not Boba Fett at all. And they are ten times better than any of the other episodes in that series. (laughs) What's great about the Mandalorian is that it's a brand new character with a brand new story that could take Star Wars in a brand new direction. Everything else, all the spin-off films, the, the Solo, the Rogue one and the other tv shows they all link back to the original trilogy essentially they're all dealing with some sort of legacy from that time period the mandalorians i think the only one that's actually going in a fresh new direction yeah aside from a few callbacks and cameos and so on it is it's own oh, yeah essentially and uh what else have you been watching jim um i have been watching police story 2 this week i got the eureka blu-ray of the first two police story films the first one i watched a while ago when i got it and i just haven't really got around to watching it until now and it is very very good it's very funny the action's great but it also takes itself a bit too seriously at times and they're the bits that you're checking your watch so it's a good two hours and a good half an hour of that is probably a bit too much on the dramatic side of things but the fights are great as you'd expect from a Hong Kong Jackie Chan film. It's even very funny, especially for a film that's, what, 30-odd years old? And it was really, really good from how they've got it from the first film to the second. Not only do they have the antagonists from the first film, but in the new one, we're also dealing with some blackmailing bombers who just like blowing the shit out of everything. As we've mentioned before with Eastern martial arts films, the Regard for health and safety is at a minimum. So people are getting hurt. Always good to hear. (laughs) As is evident in the closing credits, where it's basically a montage of everyone getting their head wounds tended to. Really? (laughs) Not even by medical professionals. Jackie Chan stood there dabbing the blood off someone's head at one point. That's unique filmmaking. <laughs> I do love with the Jackie Chan ones. You have all your little outtakes. Like, which was the one where he breaks his foot at one point, and then they have to like draw a trainer, a paint a trainer onto his cast. Like that was a good one. <laughs> I've not heard of that. Was, that was that funny. Rumble in the Bronx. I think I, I, think, I think I was Rumble in the Bronx. Um, My yeah. only only memory of the film is that bit. And the bit where he says, "Next time we meet, we won't be fighting, but drinking tea together." What a bad I heard this story, and it was it's one of the films where he's doing an act, Jackie Chan's doing an action film, and it's on the train, and he gets two cargo containers that slipping and they connect with each other, and they were real cargo containers, and some of the staff were like, well, if we do it the American wigs, we'll just have like make it out of polystyrene, and then have something for you because he had to do a, a jump kick the other container and then jump on top as they're colliding with each other 
But he's like, no, no, we'll do it the Chinese way. We'll just use real cargo containers. And he barely got out of that without being crushed when it came to actually filming the scene. And he escaped with his life. And he apparently was on top of one of the cargo containers, just sort of curled up in a ball going, the American way was better. The American way was better. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine it's not the last time he put himself in mortal danger. Even there's like rush hour. There was, I know there was a couple of stunts at least where he'd put himself in harm's way for those uh, as well. He's probably dodged more <laughs> bullets than Luke Skywalker's dodge shots from a stormtrooper. Uh, he's quality. And uh, anything else you want to mention, Jim? Uh, yeah, like, obviously after what, that, I'm still in a bit of a martial arts mood and I've uh, seen that Prime Video has finally got the sequel to Paul Anderson's Mortal Kombat film on there. Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Ooh. So I excitedly watched that earlier. And it was absolute dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it made Paul Anderson look like Paul Anderson. <laughs> I see what you did there. I, I, I don't know. It's just who are, I forget the director's name already. Sorry, but you know he obviously had a very different idea to the rest of the entire industry how films are made. So he went his own way, and I would say it's uh, fairly watchable crap. Although it does have a fair bit of fan service with the amount of characters it manages to shoehorn in this one that weren't in the first film. So it's got that going for it. And the early stage CGI, I think I'd seen better TV shows from that era with that in there. <laughs> it was absolutely abysmal. All right, well, I'm going to, I watched quite a lot, so I'm just going to reel off a whole bunch before we get to Alistair here. So here's what I've been watching lately. Bob's Burgers, the movie. If you like a show, you'll like a film. Men. Men is both really shallow and needlessly opaque. This is easily going to be a contender for the worst horror film of the year for me. Really didn't like it. And if you want to know why, read my review. Green Room. You guys seen this one? Patrick Stewart plays a Nazi. It's going to be a few yeah, things yeah. with Nazis. It's yeah, very unsettling, that. that film. I know. He was fantastic in it. Like... Um, I thought he was going to go in and be a bit of a Ben Kingsley, you know, where he doesn't look intimidating or anything, but then he suddenly explodes. But no, like he plays it so sort of like, like he's very serious. He's very still. He's very calculating. And that kind of makes him scarier because all the guys who follow him are much harder than him. But yet they look up to him as the leader. You know, he's uh, he's in charge, obviously. And we get that he probably did some big shit like 20 years ago or whatever. But the way that he, once he's got a position of authority, no one can say no to him. In fact, on a related point about another film that involves, uh, that involves Nazis, you've got Becky, which is a really good home invasion mm. film in which Kevin James plays a Nazi. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, he's a, he was a, a mall cop. And uh, The Captain. Now, The Captain's a German movie from 2017, and uh, Alistair, you're a bit of a history buff. I reckon you would love this. It's a World War II okay. horror film uh, where you follow this guy who, uh, based on a real story, he's a deserter, and then he finds a dead captain, takes the captain's jacket, and then it's a way that everyone responds to him because they think that he's got rank and authority, and about how this uh, rank and authority that he's appropriated, how that... Uh, makes him even worse than he already is going into this. Mm. Like, it's really bleak. It's really effective as a look at hierarchy and the power of uniform. And honestly, there are some scenes that I'm not going to forget for a very long time. Really solid example of historical horror. 
Eve just reminded me of a real life incident. This was in Italy where there were twins. Mm-hmm. One of them was a judge. And every now and then she would get a bit tipsy and not feel like, you know, hosting court that day. So she'd get her twin sister to go in and do it instead. And they got caught and found out. And all of the sentences, all of the decisions made, it all got had to get overturned because neither of the two sisters could actually remember who did what because they were doing it for about 14 years. <laughs> Oops. A non-trivial error. Oh, fucking hell. I also saw Gosford Park. It's a pretty layered social commentary stroke manor house murder mystery. Uh, the mystery element itself isn't the best part, but you've got some really good writing, really good performances. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Believe the hype. This is a really good film, very moving and pretty damn funny in places. It's not having as much fun as the metaverse concept as I thought it would, but at the same time, really, really good. So, uh, yeah, strongly, very much recommended. And uh, lastly, I think I'm the only one here that's seen Top Gun Maverick, right? Yeah, correct. Top Gun Maverick is so, so surprisingly good. It improves on the first one in every conceivable way. And importantly, it doesn't feel too much like a novelty film, which the first one really, really is. And that's despite completely capturing the feel of it. You know, this isn't your dark, gritty reboot or anything like this. This is still pure Top Gun. But at the same time, you've got such exciting flying sequences. You've got a really likable cast. There's a lot of tension as the uh, stakes just get higher and higher. Frankly, this is among the best action movies that I can think of since Mad Max Fury Road. So, uh, yeah, as a legacy sequel, brilliant. Anyway, Alistair, what have you been watching lately? Well, I've started with Stranger Things. I watched the first three episodes of that. Quite enjoying it. It's want to see where it goes. Um, there's, as usual with these shows, there's a phenomenal lack of parental oversight of <laughs> what the children are getting up to. And there's an interesting new villain, not the big tentacle monster I was expecting, but a smaller guy with one hand bigger than the other. If you watch the show, you'll see what happens. He's from the Upside Down. Um, But I've got an issue with, I think, think how the main, say, heroes group figure out what's going on. Because this thing does telepathic attacks from the Upside Down. So nobody's actually seen it or how it does its shall we say, its signature attack, its MO. And they ha- the good guys just they happen upon the correct answer based on very little evidence. Like, <laughs> I don't mind this, but like, just if I was in that situation, I wouldn't have reached for that one like right off the bat. Um, but it is a, a mad show with a lot of kooky ideas. And there's a great cameo from Robert Englund, uh, who in a very sort of Hannibal Lecter-style cell block conversation uh, with two of our leads. It was a very good scene. I recognised that he's under a lot of makeup, but I recognised him immediately. And I think that's just, for Stranger Things, it's a bit of stunt casting for the theme of the show, really. I do notice when the opening titles are coming up, you've got a lot of the little slight wobble in the text. There's a lot of dots that will appear that you used to get on VHS. Things like that I do quite enjoy. Um, Eleven's getting bullied at school and she didn't want her boyfriend to know it was a very touching scene there between the two of them and yeah some brutal bullying scenes 
with Elle, actually, who obviously having grown up in a lab laboratory doesn't have the social skills of everyone else. Um, but there is a roller skate scene that was very satisfying to watch. But uh, I think we should all watch the show to get there. You know, I think with Stranger Things, I've seen the first three seasons. I think the strongest bits of it are when you have the whole cast together, basically, because yeah. something that irritated me about seasons one, two and three is they, they found a way of splitting the main cast up for, for pretty much the entire season each time. And well, that's uh, you don't, happened again, yeah. Yeah, you don't really get the scenes of the kids just being kids, you know. Um, I also think that the upside down concept's kind of... Uh, it's maybe the weakest point of the show, just because um, the idea know, of if, like, if there's a Stephen King influence here, I would compare it to The Mist, because that was always meant to be a trans-dimensional rift that someone accidentally opened. Whoops! But what would have been on the other side of that? I think that's their interpretation of uh, what you have on the Upside Down. Uh, yeah, but I think for me the problem with the Upside Down is you go, okay, so it's a world just like ours, except everything is shit and it's full of monsters, right? That's like, well, that's true. Oh, you know, you, you, you like, I don't know, it's, it was fine for season one. During season two, I was like, mm, this isn't really sustaining it. But I know that they kind of reinvent the threat each time, because season two ends up kind of going almost like a, down mm. a possession route for quite a bit of it. And uh, season three, you know, you're going, okay, well, we are going back to the Upside Down, but hey, here's the Russians. So that was cool. I mean, I'm going to be honest with things like the cost of living crisis and, and Ukraine. I mean, I think eventually we're going to reach the point where all of us are going to be migrating to the upside down for a higher <laughs> quality of life. Uh, um, yeah, maybe. Have you got anything else you want to mention at all, about, at all before we kick off our feature presentation? Saw the film Leviathan. Mm -hmm. Quite enjoyed it. I think it's thematically designed to be the thing, but underwater. Um, so we've got Peter Weller as our lead, and it's nice to see Ernie Hudson in something outside of Ghostbusters. Although he's not fighting the ghosts this time, and the behind the scenes was quite interesting as well, where they go out, they're not actually underwater, but they are wearing the full, you know, the full kit, the full gear, with the headlights and their scuba diving helmets and everything, and how the setup's done, had this like very fine particle dust that would fall down to make it look like you were very, very deep under sea. Uh, quite enjoyed it. It's by no means it's by no means a great film. It's it's just enjoyable. It's not mm. a masterpiece. It's functional. It's it's leaning heavily on other films that had already done the job far better. As I say, the thing definitely being one of uh, the Leviathan's big influences. I mean, day for day, nothing wrong with that. Like, it's uh, sometimes when we criticise horror films' originality, you also have to remember that fuck it, I really enjoy the Friday the 13th films, and a lot of these are quite samey. You know, if you're doing something that's been done before, but you do it well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, with Ernie Hudson, I've seen him in one other thing. I believe he's in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Oh, where he, I forgot uh, about that. He is in that. He's really good in that. Yeah, he's please for neighbor. a great film. Yeah, decent, decently one. We should maybe at some point we should do like a domestic horror where it's like that and uh, maybe. what's that? What it's the follow-on from Men. Yeah, Men, <laughs> the hand that rocks the cradle. Also, we don't necessarily have to put the titles in that order. Yeah, what's what's the the Glenn Close one? What she boils a bunny again? Oh, fatal attraction. Yeah, fatal attraction. By the way, without any context, I don't, I've not seen that film. Why on earth does she? Boil a bunny. Because she wants to win him back. <laughs> How would that 
when you, if a, if you go home and there's a crazy woman there with like, look, I have boiled this bunny. Like, thanks, please leave. <laughs> I think it's maybe a warning, like you know, fuck you. If I can do this to your rabbit, think what I'll do to your kids. I think it's oh, so, that. Oh right, so it's his, his rabbit she boiled. I think it's a kid's rabbit, but yeah, yeah. That's still, still brutal. I mean, let's be honest here, it's the adult <laughs> that's paying for uh, the animal food and upkeep and everything. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, well, the, the, the adult's not going to hear at the end of it for ages. Uh, why, why boiling? Is it because it alliterates with bunny? Probably, yeah. <laughs> this is a strange way to off an animal. But it's it, the thing is, it's uh, it, it would be such a painful death, I guess, because you know it's like boiling the frog, where you put the temperature up ever so slightly, the frog eventually just dies, right? I believe they explode. Oh, well, according to uh, Ray Stans in Ghostbusters Two, who says this thing's going to blow like a frog in a hot plate. Ah, shit! You learn something new every day. I've, I have seen Ghostbusters <laughs> not for a very long time. Maybe you should do a Ghostbusters show. Anyway, Ghostbusters is a great source of animal cruelty. <laughs> let's do the <laughs> let's do this show that we're supposed to tonight. This is Sinister One and Sinister Two. So of course we're kicking off in chronological order and probably in order of quality with Sinister. Sweetheart, what are you doing? Painting. I want to paint her picture. Who are you talking about? Stephanie. She's living. You know, I reckon if this movie came out tomorrow, it'd potentially be even more relevant than ever because true crime has absolutely exploded since this movie got made. But hey, Sinister was a hugely successful film at the time, and it's not for no reason. I think this is a really good movie. I think it's one of the best uh, mm-hmm. supernatural supernatural horror films of the uh, decade 2010 to 2020. Yeah? That's not controversial? Well... In the I completely words agree. Of Al Pacino in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What a picture. <laughs> I think yeah. we're all agreeing. I think yeah, we're all going to agree again soon. What, one of the <laughs> great things about doing this podcast is getting to watch a film that you'd probably just dismissed as, you know, blend into the background with everything else. Or, you know, you've got preconceptions about it. But then when it surpasses your expectations, it's it just blew, it near enough blew me away, this film. That's, that's all I can say. I think Sinister may be one of the best films I've seen for this podcast. Um, yeah. you know, or at that least, is high praise. I mean, we did Hellraiser parts three, three to ten. I, so. I know. <laughs> uh, I'm not disagreeing with you, Jim. I, didn't realize, I thought you may have seen this before. Uh, is this your first time? Yeah, yeah. As, as I said, I'd kind of just dismissed it. This came along around the same time as like Insidious and The yeah. Conjuring and stuff like that. So I just thought it was a uh, production line sort of thing. And, uh, Ethan Hawke, yeah, he's a great actor. I, I really rate him. Mm-hmm. Oh, but yeah. at the time, I thought, well, he's you know, stars fading, isn't it? So it's probably just a, another conservatory for him or whatever as i say you know i had my own preconceptions about it and dismissed yeah. it but 10 years later here we are and it's probably one of the best horror films i've seen to compliment what you're saying there i've watched this film like three or four times now and i know what you mean when someone's career is on the rise or if it's on the downturn but i think some of the films that 
Ethan Hawke has done have been phenomenal. And this certainly being one of them, and not just Ethan Hawke, every, every cast member brings their A-game to this mm, movie. Mm, absolutely. There's not one scene there where you're not fixed on what they're doing, regardless mm-hmm. of what's happening. It's been an interesting point here that uh, you're mentioning that this came out while Ethan Hawke's star seemed to be falling. And yet, ironically, that's sort of acknowledged by the movie itself, where you have a writer mm. who's clearly had his best days, his biggest hits, and now he's kind of uh, coming to terms with his lack of relative fame compared to where he had been before. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> that's good casting for Ethan Hawke. Yeah, yeah, it's a great conversation with the sheriff at the beginning, which mm. does superb work at yeah, setting that, that, up so much. That, that probably gets rid of 10, 15 minutes of exposition in any other film. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like just that one minute with the sheriff, we already know what he's like. You know, we've seen he's a writer and he's moving there and it's established in that very, very brief conversation he's moved there because of what we saw at the very opening of the film. And I want to say as well, there's a great, I think it's one of my favourite reveals in any film I've ever seen where he's talking with the sheriff just as the sheriff turns around to get back in his uh, patrol car and drive off. And he says to Ethan Hawke, he says, and this, and he points to the house, this I find in especially bad taste. And that's just left hanging. There's no dialogue mm. then explain it, it. And this is the absolute element of show, don't tell. Ethan mm. Hawke speaks to his wife. He walks into his house. I think he gives his son a head rub or something, and then he walks through to the living room. And then the camera pans around, and then you see the tree from yeah. the opening. Oh, and yeah. it does play into when the wife asks, we didn't move into a house a couple down from the murder scene again, did we? He's like, no, no, it happened. <laughs> and you're like, well, he's, he's not lying. I love that. It's showing the kind of, but firstly, he's got form in this. The guy's obviously mm-hmm. a bit of a chancer. And also, it puts us as the audience in a really interesting place because we want to see a horror film, so he has to be there. But we're also like, well, he's lying to his wife, but he didn't take shit off the sheriff, you know? We like one part of him. We kind of also find the other part of him frustrating. I think that's really interesting. Uh, in terms of where we see the character go, you, you know the bit in Breaking Bad, right, where uh, where Walt turns down the money when he gets offered it by his uh, by his ex colleagues, and you almost have yeah. the sinister version of that. It's a bit where he's calling the police, and then he looks at his bookshelf and yeah. then hangs up the phone, right? And that's the point of no return. It's the point where this isn't about doing the right thing any longer. You know, he'll he'll watch himself saying, "Ah, oh, yeah, I'd rather cut off my hands than write a book for um, was it fortune and money or fame, fame and, and fortune." Money. And he, he, his motivations through his action, not dialogue, his actions are are displayed clearly to the audience. There, yeah, you've got him kind of cynically rolling his eyes at it. This sort of young idealism and things, but you're also like, hang on, that version of you wouldn't have just put his family in danger in order to like serve his ego. And to be fair, he doesn't know yet his family's in danger, and when he does realise they they do, well, they they leave, but they unfortunately play into the villain's hands. Oh, he takes a long time to tell his wife. I mean, when when he does, I like how explosive it gets. Like, that Mm. argument scene is just fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Got the bit where he's going half to the backyard. You know, you you have to start laughing at that. You do because yeah, it, I, it's yeah. absurd. But then the bit where he goes, so, you know, my writing gives my life meaning. This is you know, this is my mm. legacy here. And you're like, that's not a thing to say to your wife when you have children. What <laughs> <laughs> well, thing to say to the mother of your children? I just want to say there is a bit of sort of lead up to that when he's kind of chatting with Deputy So and So, and Deputy So and So. Like, he seems a bit dopey, but he's actually a bit smarter than what I think the audience are initially given, give, would give the character credit for. Because he does say, like, you, your wife does know that this is the house, doesn't she? And then Ethan Hawke does some great squirming. And obviously, Deputy So-and-So then comes out with, oh, man, that's not a conversation I would want to be around for. <laughs> and then we cut back to Ethan Hawke squirming even worse than ever. <laughs> But we, we also find out really early on that we're having issues selling the house. So, you know, money's clearly a motivator here, too. Like, this guy's obviously a bit of a twat, but I think two things that work for him. He's relatable. He's, he's an insecure twat, you know, and, we, and we're like, OK, we can, um, we can at least identify with the idea of things aren't going as you think they should. You know, you, you, you feel like your great work's not being recognised or whatever. And uh, also... You've got this uh, kind of angle of desperation here. You know, we, we have the recurring thing of, oh, you can go back to writing your boring old textbooks, which, uh, to be fair, as an academic, I can say that academic writing is an absolute chore sometimes. But the idea of going down from a, being a bestseller to writing a textbook, you know, he's had a life at the very top here. We get the idea that he was very famous. And it's just the mediocrity just isn't good enough for him. You know, I think it's um, it's ego talking here, it's insecurity talking here. At the same time, there's a context, and we're 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 and we like Ethan Hawke. He's such a charming presence, you know. So uh, yeah, basically, really good protagonist. We do not have that in the next one, but we'll come to that in just a wee bit. <laughs> like the, I mean, he has guilt to start with, as we're having a conversation from the sheriff. Now, my notes are voted down as writer's guilt. But obviously, Kentucky Blood was the book that was the big hit. Now, I can't remember the titles of the other two books that he did, but they were Swings and Misses, and one of them led to the release of a serial killer and other people die. So obviously, this is something that's weighing on Ethan Hawke during this. But obviously, mm. his I think pride gets the better of him after the... Uh, and what I will say about this film as well it is a really great take on the found footage format. It's a really good, a fresh twist on it when you're watching the film through the eyes of someone who is watching these sort of mini vignettes of uh, families being executed, essentially. Oh, and these videos were so good. Like, they're really effective, really scary. They looked so gritty and authentic. My favourite's the lawnmower. That was just spot on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I am... That, that, the, the music accompanying it as yeah. well was horrible. I, I've seen a lot of horror films where they've tried to, you know, have a sinister twist, sorry for the pun, but a sinister <laughs> twist on, on the music, but they just absolutely nail it here. It's so unsettling and horrid like especially when we get towards the end but yeah they i wouldn't have even until you mentioned it i wouldn't have even had this as 
a subgenre of the subgenre of found footage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it didn't even occur to me. I just because of the way he comes across it. Um, obviously, there's a haunted box in his loft. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's got all that old uh, Super 8 film in there. So, yeah, that just seemed to me as a way of establishing, you know, all the, all the grisly goings on that have happened. You, you do run into the 13 reasons why problem of just watch all the tapes at once, pal, for not that long. Because you see bits where he's like, <laughs> he's during the day, he's doing his slow typings, he's not very inspired, whatever you're like, mate. You have the best clues you're possibly going to get. <laughs> Just take the afternoon off, you know, put up your feet. Um, <laughs> they, they are, I mean, they have, they have to be at least shown to be functionally truncated for the runtime of uh, the film. Mm. And we get, I think it's four or five that we get mm. to see the swimming pool, the tree hanging, the lawnmower, as you said, and the knifing uh, through the house. Mm. So there's all, most of them have this sort of duality of filming the happy family enjoying their lives playing around interacting and then death gloom, yeah barbecue and pool party ju- just do that juxtaposition so well mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. hanging scene i mean what a statement to open the movie right yeah <laughs> it, it's for an opening it get it hooks you right in and what i'll just compliment what jim was saying about the music i think it gets more harrowing as the movie goes on because mm all the bodies are slowly rising and the music rises mm. with those bodies. And But later on, there's like weird vocals being inserted and it kind of reminds me of a few creepy levels of Doom 64. Not <laughs> many horror movies would do that for me. Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about this twist when you find out that the kids have done it. I thought that was, that was really good because they don't cheat. All the way through it, we're frequently reminded there's a child missing. We see the ghost children, so we go, maybe what we did is he killed those kids separately. And then we go, aha, no, they joined the ghoul, right? And it's just such a neat little switcheroo that, they, that you know, these kids, we should be scared of them because they're, they're the ones who are, like, hanging their parents. I don't know how the fuck the kid does that. The ghoul must give them some sort of supernatural ability. Otherwise, you can't, like, yank uh, parents into the pool and things like that, but... I like it when you get a horror reveal that where like the audience is kind of put in a position where you feel a bit of helplessness here, right? And as soon as uh, as soon as that reveal happens, you know, he you know he looks at his note, the good night, daddy, uh, which now takes on a new meaning. You see the kids standing there, like, oh shit, I didn't see that coming, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think I think that was a really good, really good concept. Yeah, it was great. You, you knew from the moment. Uh, Deputy so and so is trying to get hold of him. That yeah, you know, we're, we're there. We're, we're, we've finally got to this point where we know what's happening, and the shit's hitting the fan. So not only to throw in that twist of the ghost kids actually being the antagonist, because you know the, the pained expressions, the fact that they're communicating with his kids, you, you think they're possibly trying to warn them. Uh, and the way it sets it up is great. Mm. And then for him to pull the rug out and say the kids are complicit along with it the entire time is fantastic. But you've also got the fact that they have, to, part of this weird law is that they have to have moved from the original murder house to a different house for that to then take place. It's just really odd, but also really great. <laughs> yeah, because I guess it's a bit like The Ring, right? Whereby 
focusing upon houses just like a VHS, it's something that will replicate because people will move in and people will move out and so on and so on. Mm. And there's something quite cool about the concept of, right, your house is haunted, but if you leave, then that's when you're really fucked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's counterintuitive in a way. Stay in the haunted house. Yeah, because there's so many horror films. You're like, just move out, guys. And, and uh, this one is like, it's like, ah, you thought that you were retreat safe. Retreat to safety is exactly what signs your death warrant. Yeah, because horror, horror needs a good no way out scenario, and in mm. this case, it really is one. It's like you know, if you take the bait and do leave, you're not going to go to tell anyone about this. Mm. Um, I didn't particularly like the design for Bagul, but at the same time, whilst he's not really in it very much, mm. I like that he's, he keeps a constant presence over the entire thing. Mm. Like, most of this movie takes place in a study room at night, but the mystery itself is good enough to sustain that. The mood's good enough to sustain it. It's so atmospheric. It's just constant lashing down of rain, you know, like, Oh, is something in the yard? And while some of the scare scenes I, I'm not a big fan of, like the boy in the box was just daft, you know? Like, <laughs> I have a comment about that because I, <laughs> I often suspect when you're auditioning actors for roles, like I think they got a bunch of boys and thought, who's who can bend over backwards literally and do a full <laughs> throat scream? Like, who's the creepiest kid we can get for that scene? And I think... Uh, the act that played Trevor was the one that got the part because he's not of all the family. I would say he's featured the least. Yeah, that's probably fair. And a lot of things you would see in other films, like they they talk about him defacing the uh, whiteboard at school yeah. with the picture of the hanging from the tree. In ninety nine point nine percent of every horror film you'll see, you'll see the kid get up acting all weird and write it on the board and so on. But in this, it's just a conversation. And I like the way it just deals with that. I suspect that the film didn't have the budget to feature a whole new set, cast a whole classroom of kids. I just think they didn't have the budget for that. But, but still, regardless of that matter, it just... Yeah, they still it still comes across very naturally and fluidly. Yeah, because we're seeing it. it all from Ellison's point of view. So Yeah, I just want to say, I, th- I have a very quick theory about this, where Bagul chooses one of the children to, say, abduct and kill their families. Maybe Trevor was the first choice, and then he switches to the daughter, actually. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that was probably intentional misdirection at first, when he's coming out of the box. I think the box, the only way I can rationalise, but the, the usage of the box there was, we're trying to draw... Um, an immediate link between them moving in and things getting weird. Hmm. I just thought this is one of like two scare sequences in the film. If you ever scare sequence where the kids are all dancing around, that was that didn't really do anything for me either. The makeup just didn't look quite right. But on this this point that Jim was bringing in, bringing in right, right. Uh, but we we're seeing it all from his perspective, and I didn't really consider that because I think he is in every single scene, and that maybe explains why we don't really get that much world building because he's stuck in the house the entire time. Because like when yeah. uh, you know they're moving to a town, but we never see the town. You know, we never we never see like she's in the supermarkets and everyone's giving her dirty looks, like she claims happens. You know, we never we never get any of that. She that actress is so good as uh, the mm. wife and she absolutely sells it. She fully sells that role. Yeah. And I, get, I mean, I, I would love to see her in more films. Frankly, she, she absolutely killed it. 
Yeah, uh, by the way, another thing about the locations, I really like the, tr- the use of tracking shots throughout because we really get to know the, ho- the house's layout. You know, yeah. also, this is a big, elaborate set, which when we come to the second one, you don't really have that. The second one feels like a kind of, kind of just like a series of rooms that are just stuck together in this, you know? It doesn't feel like a living, breathing place. Whereas here, as we're following them moving in, it's an intimate relationship. As viewers, we're moving in with them here. As viewers, we leave with them. The yeah. sense of location is just phenomenally realized. So, uh, yeah, very good. Just want to say on that, and I know it's a few observations where, because I've seen this film before, and I, I did a double check on one of the details, because later on in the film, quite close to the third act, they're reviewing the movies that they've seen, and the ghoul, which I kind of have to concede is a bit of a silly name, and the ghoul appears in each one of the videos, and there's one with a tree hanging, and the four family members hanging from the tree. And there's a shot where you zoom in and it's the ghoul's face just in the bushes watching, giggling probably. But in the actual opening, it's not there. But that was added in after the fact. Yeah, that irritates me too. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing that now. <laughs> so I watched the film, so I'll do a double check because I don't remember seeing that. And I think one of the issues with the ghoul is that he's got this, his face is ghastly white and ghastly black. And those are the deepest shades that stand out and they contrast from the greenery. And yeah, it's just not in that opening scene at all. And I've checked. <laughs> oh, yeah. Heard a bit of trivia here, folks. Mm. Now, with Ethan Hawke, as the film goes on, he becomes more and more unhinged. You know, you really see the consequence of all the alcohol he's been having. You see the consequence of his lack of sleep, his constant stress through a mixture of ghostly goings on and also like the pressure of getting this fucking book released. I think this is one of the strongest performances I've seen by Ethan Hawke. And he's the guy who's got a long string of very good performances. I want to add to that as well. There's one of my favorite scenes. So many good scenes in this are just characters talking and they don't have anything to do with horror stuff at all. When he has Officer So-and-So around and Officer So-and-So, he basically... He's, he's a couple of things. He admits that he admires Ethan Hawke's Ellison Oswald as a writer, and he wants him to sign his book. He admires him, and he's happy to go behind his sheriff's back and help him out on the case, which he does. But then he does. He also wants to say something like, "I think you're drinking too much," and there's sort of like there's like Officer So and So comes into this. There's a hierarchy between the two. An officer so-and-so has sort of placed Ellison's character above himself. So he's coming at it from a very delicate, tentative, I want to try and say this thing to you in a way that doesn't cause you any offence. They have that talk about the booze. And then they both sort of, while their arms are up, and there's like hands out. The physical acting, the dialogue, it's a cracking scene. It's an absolutely cracking scene. It's like, I'm not saying you're drunk but maybe you've put yourself under so much stress. And the, the way he sort of dances around the topic whilst also eventually getting there um, with Alison. And, and, and Ethan Hawke, actually, he can't deny it. Mm. He, he has had a whiskey ball out every single time Officer So-and-So has been around. Uh, it's a great scene. And again, it's just, yeah, the, the dialogue in this throughout, because this is a very dialogue-driven film. And yeah. it, uh, well, dialogue and mood, there's not really a whole lot of action in it. 
mm-hmm. you know, we don't really get much uh, much of the, of the big bad either. You know, it's primarily a mystery horror, if anything. I think this is actually, I don't want to comment too much on the sequel before we get to it, but I think a bit like Saw 2, you can only really do a mystery in a franchise once, and then you have to go, well, what do we make for a recurring element if we can't do the mystery? I know, we're going to do the videos here, and that's what we do instead. But mm. one of my favourite bits towards the beginning is when you've got the uh, little girl just being a bratty kid with the, and why, and why, over and over again. But it was a really quite quite natural way of communicating a lot of backing story, a lot of information here. And it's believable that a kid would keep mm. on doing that. Of going, well, Why is that the case? Why is that the case? And so on and so on. So, uh, you know, again, just as a script, really tight. So much information got across very quickly in a way where you don't just feel like you're watching a really unskilled chess player trying to set up a move. Ah, I'm so glad you watched this. There's a natural (laughs) flow to it as well. Um, I want to point out so very quickly something that I I knew from behind the scenes uh, because of the IMDb trivia of the film, but um, it ends, they move to the new house, everything goes pear-shaped. Then you see the box full of movies back in the attic and the camera's panning back from it and you get some unsettling music. The director just wanted that to end the film on that unsettling note. Studio interference, however, dictated that Bagul poke his face out in front of the camera for one final jump scare. And yeah, that was cheap. It's like, now that I know that, I would rather have had the unsettling mood ending. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. But I kind of saw that coming anyway. Cause, uh, yeah, that, that's what they're like, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that, be like that. Like going back to Bagul as a character as a whole. Um, yeah, I, I think it works better when you when it's you know a case of what the hell is that rather than just the big figure we see a bit more of towards the end. I mean, when when we first see him in the pool. That genuinely frightened me a little bit. I mean, <laughs> I can't say that about any film I've seen for a long time. But it, there are moments where it works well. But yeah, other than that, it does seem like it's just used as a kind of jump scare bogeyman. It also works well because I got the impression that the ghost kids were there because they were scared of him and they were trying to warn the, the family about him. And yeah. I thought that worked really well in that regard. I'd say the pool scene's definitely a good introduction to his character. You don't see it clearly, but what I also appreciate in the film is that you'll often see like images of something bad and then the image will move by magic. Mm. And we got a lot of lingering shots where Bagul is there, but not moving. They kept their powder dry for a long time before doing the movement scare. There might even be a trope for that, but uh, it, they, they held off and they only did it once. And I kind of admire that restraint. You know, there are a few tropes that come up in this, like kids doing creepy paintings and stuff like that. It's a bit tropey. Or a kid going, oh, yeah, I spoke to this ghost earlier. And it's being totally nonchalant <laughs> about it. But at the same time, it didn't really annoy me in this one. Um, just because, again, I think it was, uh, I think it was just done so well. The ghost of uh, Stephanie talking to the living Ashley, I mean, that that is directly how the mother finds out that they've moved into the mm. dead family's home. So I actually kind of really like that 
because Ethan Hawke might have been trying to protect his wife through different avenues of finding out that this is the house. The dead previous owner is not an angle he could have uh, covered for. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Plus, you you know, when when they're done as well as this, you like it. I mean, we're doing a horror movie podcast, so we're going to get through a lot of recycled tropes over and over again with a lot of these films. But it's one of the reasons why we enjoy it. And when they're done as well as this, you you know you can't help but you know admire it, can you? Oh, Bevy, if you guys watched the trailer for Scott Derrickson's next collaboration with Ethan Hawke, we've got a film called The Black Phone, which comes out, and it yes. looks superb from the trailer. Yeah, I think it was meant Hard. to come out a bit earlier, but obviously because mm-hmm. of the pandemic and so on, it's been constantly you know moved back. Because uh, I saw the trailer for it. Probably about a year ago. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah it's been a while in the making. <laughs> and I thought it looked really good. So, yeah, I'm, I'm dead keen to see that one. It's based on a story by uh, Joel Hill, who's uh, Stephen King's son. Uh, wrote the, the He wrote Horns, which he got a reasonable movie out of as well. But he wrote the, the fantastic book uh, Nosferatu, which is spelt like a card number plate. Uh, a good thousand-page book, which is frankly as good as uh, some of Stephen King's best stuff. So uh, it was not a windy day when the apple fell from that tree. It's one other thing that I would, wanted to mention. Scott Derrickson, of course, did The Exorcism of Emily Rose and Hellraiser Inferno. So I do like that he does seem to be coming back to horror as well as obviously his DC outing, sorry, Marvel outing. <laughs> That's sacrilege. I'll get me cancelled. <laughs> Marvel outing with uh, Doctor Strange, which while Doctor Strange is not one of my favourite Marvel films, at the same time, the uh, visually it was phenomenal. So, mm. you know, he's a, he's a very good stylist and it seems to be able to work very well with, with a range of different budgets. Oh, a, a, a small scene that I think needs to get a thumbs up is uh, we mentioned the argument scene earlier. All of us were a big fan of that. It was such a nice bit afterwards where, you know, they've had their like big blowout. They're all like, fuck you, and so on. Then he goes through to sleep on the sofa. And then you got her going through and then proceeding to wake him up so that he'd come through and join her in bed. And you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah. little character moments like that, that's what makes this film. Because it's a small cast and it gets a lot out of him. It's, it was an interesting argument where you can see where both parties are coming from, mm. and you, you can really see where the conflict is. But beyond, they do still they do still love each other. Those two, they, the, the yeah. actors, they really they really sold it. You would be guys got anything else you want to bring into this film before we move on? Uh, just uh, really the visual style as well. Uh, as you know, we haven't mentioned. But a few of the jump scares where we see the animals and so on, like you've got the totems, which mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know foreshadow the ghoul's arrival. Uh, I, I don't know about anyone else, but if I found a scorpion in my attic, I would be calling a professional about that. <laughs> <laughs> I love the the scene with Deputy So and So, who's essentially comic relief of this film, to see her feet here um, in the attic <laughs> and running about, and he goes, "Yeah, snakes don't have feet." Scorpions, scorpions do have feet, but uh, you wouldn't necessarily hear that. It's, it's his absolute candor logic. I like that bit where because he, he seems to hurt his foot and then calls the police. Right? Yes. <laughs> like, get a fucking ambulance dead pal. I mean, they do cover the tracks because he thinks someone was up there, so fair enough. But I did bit. still bring Murph. 
as when that shot came up, the paramedics tending to his foot, and then Officer So and So standing there. I was like, "Why has the police been called to this?" <laughs> they do cover it well, so yeah. No, it's visually sound design. There's a lot going for this mm. film, despite <laughs> some of the things like, as I say, Bagul is a bit of a silly name, but I believe the overall Bagul, it definitely works. Bagul, I believe, translates to boogeyman. Well, in the drawings we see, they call him Mr. Boogie, don't they? So, yeah. But, you know, I guess it's uh, loosely related. But, um, yeah, there's a good sequence. Um, it's when he gets woken up by the projector coming on in his office and he grabs the baseball bat and he's walking around and we see the ghost kids like creep up beside him and, you know, they're running around. He's turning around. He, you know, doesn't see them. And then he'll sit on the sofa and then all of a sudden, you know, you see the exposure from the window behind him. So they glow orange and burst into daylight and he realizes he's fallen asleep. That's a really good moment mm. that, that basically heralds in them getting out of Dodge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is kind of the feeling of displacement that comes with this. You know, the guy's not sleeping. He's woke, He's been waking, woken up at fucking ridiculous o'clock in the morning. That kind of feeling where you don't even know what time it is. That transition does that. It's brilliant. A lot of creative choices were done well in this. I just want to also say that there is actually a series of horror movies called The Boogeyman. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that the reason that we've got a ghoul is because they couldn't do that because there's already these films that are out featuring The Boogeyman as is. Yeah, I think that's probably probably about right, actually. Yeah, because people might... I don't know if it'd be necessarily be a legal issue as long as we're not calling the film that, but at the same time... It makes the whole thing seem a bit less fresh if you're going, oh, it's a boogeyman, like that shitty film from 2002 or whatever, or the uh, mm. sequels. Uh, it adds a bit more gravitas to uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's cameo as well, I suppose, you know, tying it to Norwegian mythology. Oh, God, the exposition dump call. Mm. You know why? I liked that, but at the same time, that sort of thing would use, again, it would usually irritate me there, you're just like, you know, we're we're totally invested in Ethan Hawke's oh, journey. And you're and like, as soon as he's finding out, it's just like, yes, you know, I'm finding I, out with him. I will say this, I think exposition dumps when they're done right. And that character is what, if he was in Austin Powers, his name would be Basil Exposition. <laughs> um, <laughs> they did it at the right time. And his character, he's a very, I think he's introduced at the start of the third act. He's a very lately introduced character. But we have a thirst to want to know what the hell's going on at that point. So when it comes down to the exposition, I, th- I think there is a hunger in the audience to to listen to this guy to find out what is going on. But if they had any old guy playing him, would it be as engaging? The fact that it's those two actors chewing up that bit was much better than, say, if yeah. it was just Johnny B movie guy. Yeah, I love that um, the guy's wife appears in the background giving him a cup yeah. of tea. <laughs> There's so many little details in this film that add to a, a good complete film. Oh, we should do star ratings. What are we going to give this one? I am going to give this one four stars. I think it's a brilliant film, one of the best of its subgenre of the decade it came out, etc. Doesn't quite land the five. It's just 
I don't know if it's a slightly convoluted plot or just the scare sequence is not really working for me, but this is still a, a hell of an achievement. I'm a really big fan, and I'm, again, very glad to have rewatched this. I'm going to reiterate that sentiment of four stars. I'm, I'm going to one-up and give it a five. I think it was maybe a tad too long, but the payoff for me did it justice, and you know any inconsistencies that came prior to that was just resolved for me personally that that uh, final five minutes just made the film for me it's a great it's a great ending i have to say yeah we move on to, to sinister two i remember it was at fright fest uh in 2013 i think it's maybe 2014 and uh it was a promotion for Sin- for sinister two there uh, I can't remember if it was if it was C. Robert Cargill who was there in person. I think it was him. If uh, C. Robert Cargill, if you happen to be listening to this, in which case you're not going to like the second half. Um, uh, if it was you who was there, uh, then we briefly spoke. Now, the point is, he was bigging up the second one, saying that for him, this is a kind of sequel. Uh, he likened it to Final Destination 2. He described it as a sequel which expands the universe in a way that it makes the first one even better on rewatch, but at the same time, you don't need to watch it to get the full story of fir- in the first one. Now, I don't think he succeeded for reasons we'll be coming to in just a wee bit. But at the same time, I was surprised there was a, se- was, was a sequel being made to this one at all. I assume it was primarily because it made a hell of a lot of money on a small budget. I mean, that only cost $3 million or so to make. The second one cost $10 million, despite looking like lower production values, but if you were, when you first heard if you were making a sequel to this, or if you were making a sequel only knowing the first exists, what would you, where would you assume the sequel would go? Because honestly, when I heard for the second one coming up, I had absolutely no idea what they were going to do with it. And I didn't think, but I wasn't particularly excited to learn up until I knew it was the same writer. I just assumed that we would get a rehash of the first film, basically only with a different family, maybe an uh, appearance from a previous character, which, you know, we obviously do get. Um, yeah. But either that or they maybe do a prequel for possibly one of the ones we'd already seen. And uh, yourself, Al? I wouldn't really know where to go with a sequel, being that um, I think this is sort of one of those occasions where everything the Sinister franchise needed to say is said in the very first film. Uh, Having said that, I think with Sinister 2, this is now the reason why there's not been a Sinister 3. Having said that, um, I thought they had plans for a crossover, and those plans, according to Wikipedia, are still ongoing. It's a crossover between Sinister and Insidious, the working title being in Sinister. <laughs> so there's that. Sinsidious. Um, <laughs> how, <laughs> how, how, exactly. It could, have, it could have worked either way. How how the ghoul would function in a Insidious film, I have absolutely no idea. But um, yeah, they seem to be planning one. Yeah, no, I think Sinister 2 is really where it all unravels. So, folks, we're now going to stop talking about Sinister 2 and take a break to return to Sinister 2. Come on. I don't like it when you boys watch stuff like that before bed, okay? So let's go. Come on. It's not real, Mom. So Keith, it's not real. Keith. 
here to right. I'm just going to lay my cards down on the table here. For a movie that came out of the cinema, it's a direct sequel and has returning cast and crew. I think this might be one of the worst horror sequels ever made. It's a, that's a massive drop in quality. Yeah, okay, maybe it's maybe it's not so much for one of the worst horror sequels. Maybe it's just a case of the biggest drop in quality between two numbers whilst retaining the same writing team and some of the same actors. Like, this is a piece begin, of shit, right? It's <laughs> awful. This is awful. The thing is, I mean, what, I, what became very clear to me is that because we have to have a whole new set of um, sort of like vignettes filmed in like Super 8 format. So a bunch of new families need to have died. In Sinister 1, it's like one family per decade that we're looking at being killed. In this one, because it, I think it's set three years later, so it's what, one every three months since the previous film? I reckon these must have been extra videos because you were looking at that going, that wasn't filmed in 2015. Yeah. <laughs> or it wasn't meant to look yeah. like it was filmed in 2015. <laughs> but I agree, the, uh, the timeline's confusing here. It suggests that there's multiple sets of Bagul murders <laughs> or uh, Bagul boxes. Bagul just went mental since the first <laughs> film. I mean, he must uh, be because he's a child collector. So there's what's that a villain in JJ Bang Bang or something? Um, <laughs> so he's functionally a child collector, and he's 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 upped his game since the original film. Ah, uh, he's got such a My Chemical Romance look about him as well. Like he's got <laughs> with his hair and makeup and stuff. Well, all I noticed is that he has oh, his. His face is nothing but guy liner. His, he's got these white cuffs on his wrists that I didn't notice in the first film. And it's like, oh, he's a rock star this time. Like, they've changed his look, and for the worse. For instance, as I said in my previous one, talking about Sinister One, Bagul didn't look great to begin with. Mm. And he would think anything you would do to change that would be an improvement, but they managed to find a way to make him look worse than he did before. Yeah, same with the kids, really. The makeup in this film looks appalling. Um, well, it's it CGI makeup. Doesn't it never it, looks good. It doesn't help that it's... Why would you even do that as well? Um, it doesn't help that it's uh, it's so well lit most of the way through it as mm. well. And the other thing is, one thing that's a lot less scary than ghostly children who just stand there and do nothing is ghostly children who talk endlessly. <laughs> I think it, one, like, it suffers from... Like I remember hearing this about the creators of, I won't go down the Game of Thrones rabbit hole, but um, the White Walkers and the Night King, like they never spoke. And I think one creative decision they did get right, even up to season eight, anything that those characters said would diminish them. So you keep them silent the whole time. And the children in Sinister One never spoke. Children in Sinister 2 talk way too much, and it it really ruins their mystique. Yeah, I think the, wherever was the smart thing about the concept of this one is they went, all right, well, you know, we discussed how difficult it would be to do a sequel to Sinister 1. And they go, all right, well, we're going to tell the story, but from the kid's perspective this time, you're going to see what this looks like. 
the problem is that the, it becomes a bit too much like Children of the Corn, which is not helped by the location whatsoever, uh, where, you know, you're watching this kind of uh, kids religion, kid cult coming in. And that really depends on firstly having a really good young cast, which I don't think this one does. But secondly, giving them a kind of dialogue that elevates them above other scary kid tropes. And again, I just don't think this manages it. Like, we don't really have the kind of economic world building that we did last time. It seems a lot more direct and even at times just quite stilted. Uh, some of that's the acting, some of it's writing. And then while we do have some returning characters, uh, we've got so-and-so comes back. And maybe because we just watched him be comic relief for basically two hours, I'm just not really buying him as a protagonist. I think they also make him too nice. Same with Courtney. The two of them are just too nice. They're just being nice to each other all the way through it. You know, you don't have any conflict between them. She's not pressing him for information and he's telling her nothing. He knows information. He's not telling her. And she doesn't really care because she doesn't know that she doesn't know, you know? His dialogue's not as good this time around. It's just a bit flat and it's it's functional. His dialogue's designed to get the story from A to B, whereas last time... He says snakes don't have feet. I'm I'm laughing, but I'm like, I want to hear more of what this guy has to say. Mm. He's quite, I'm enjoying the moment. I'm enjoying this character. And I don't enjoy his character really quite the same at any point in this film. He's playing an Ethan Hawke character, but without the interesting backstory and without the uh, alcoholism or the guilt or anything. Yeah, without the conflict, it made him so interesting. Mm. Now, Jim's being a bit of a dark horse here. So, Jim, is this when you suddenly turn around and you tell us, by the way, I thought Sinister was like the be- one of the best horror films I've seen lately until I saw this and it blows out of the water. I wouldn't go that far, but it did surprise me in that I quite enjoyed watching this one as well. What? Uh, <laughs> wow. Bearing in really? mind, how do you follow that? I don't know if you, know. you are anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You're off the show. It- <laughs> Like Sinister was going to be a tall order to follow. One of the best horror films I've seen, period. And to do a sequel to it, obviously, that is inevitable. Maybe it's because I recently sat through several Hellraiser sequels. But um, <laughs> I thought they did a good job of doing a follow-up to it. Yeah, it's not on the same level, but what they managed to do was still make a decent, scary story. And, yeah, there's a hell of a lot of inconsistencies, which you've already mentioned. And that's before we even get on to how it was established in the first film that you need to move on to the scary house and then move out that one. Is it linear? Is it splintered? Is Bagul here, there and everywhere? Is it an it follows situation where it has to go from one to another to another? Or what? You know, that's left open, not even touched upon Really? <laughs> yeah, we, we don't get much much uh, extra information about Bagul in this one, actually. Or is, which, to be fair, is not necessarily a bad thing. Like, I'm kind of glad we didn't get a prequel. Hmm. But yeah, sorry, so you said other things you don't like, but what did you like about this? Uh, I think it was pretty much... Well, I wasn't a fan of the fact that the plot is basically showing kids snuff films. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's a bit grim. Uh, these kids are traumatized as it is because you know they're from a an abusive family, yeah. 
and they're trying to get away from that. So as well as trying to get away from that, you've got these ghost kids showing these really this really naive child people getting murdered in really sadistic ways. Now, the way those are done are actually really good. Again, I mean, not a patch on the first film, and if you ask me, the uh, bit in the church with the rats in the buckets, I'm pretty sure I saw that on Too Fast, Too Furious many years ago. <laughs> so, Apparently, that historically, that was an actual torture method. Oh, uh, I'm not disputing that, but, yeah. you know, Ludacris did it first. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I've, I, I actually quite enjoyed seeing the deputy return. It's disgraced, but still kind of obsessed with what was going on because he opened up about you know being intrigued in like the paranormal and he was quite superstitious about that sort of thing in the first film. So to see it develop from there, I thought was quite a neat touch. And I knew we'd see another university professor. I knew we wouldn't get the same one from the first film because I assume he was above this. Uh, <laughs> so I, I had a feeling we were going to go down that route, although we actually went to university this time and had a neatly designed uh, CB radio with its own little uh, Bagul logo on there. I noticed that as well. <laughs> yeah, top left. And oh, that, that was quite a good sequence, you know, where we're getting the transmission coming in. Mm. And um, you, there's a nice line of dialogue in that where you got the uh, translation into uh, quiet, Bagul can't hear me over you yelling, which is a really quite haunting line to hear from a kid. It's such an abusive <laughs> thing to say, yeah. And uh, Alistair, I think you were telling me, because we were speaking a bit before this, that the uh, voices that we hear over transmission, is that recalling the voices from the first film? There's right, so the sort of the end, there's a, a point in the first film where Ethan Hawke wants to burn it's like the film in, the, in Babadook where the mother wants to burn the book. We get that moment with Ethan Hawke and he wants to burn all the film reels and everything. This is before he finds out that they magically regenerate. He burns it and we're hearing this song we're hearing this tune, the, the background, you know, the music for the film. And there's like a child counting one, two, three in it, um, or they're counting down from seven, six, five, something like that. But it's made intentionally, so you can't quite understand what's being said. And that tune appears as the end credits for uh, the first Sinister as well. But in the transmission, we're hearing that kid talking about the counting but without the music it's it's that in isolation it's the vocals in isolation which i thought was a really nice touch mm, there's quite a bit of continuity between the first and second uh in terms of things like presentation where you know a deputy so-and-so or former deputy so-and-so uh he's got ethan hawk's crazy board from the first one which i mm -hmm. thought was quite nice mm -hmm. the aesthetic of it isn't particularly similar i think derrickson really does bring something quite distinct but at the same time, like, the soundtrack comes back in it, you know, it's, uh, yeah, the, 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 although we're using 16 millimeters rather than Super 8s for this one, I, I'm not enough of a film connoisseur to know that I looked that up, but, um, <laughs> you know, I think, again, the videos are quite cool. I really, uh, my favorite is the alligator one. Mm. I guess knowing it's the kids who are setting this up, though, it's less, um, it's less impactful than just where you have a mystery. 
you know, like, in, yeah. like again, the first one, you're like, why, why are this family being hung? What's going on here? And yeah. this time, you're like, it's a video. You know, it's another. Yeah. Piece. It's like with Saw, where there's something quite immediate about the first time that you see someone have to hack off, like, a, hack off their their food. Whereas, like, when you're watching, like, here's the rack, and they're getting like the body twisted in like seven different places. You know, it's it feels less less good, hmm. basically. Yeah. yeah. A lot of franchises sort of have that, where the first one will have the impact, and then yeah, people enjoy it, but they want more sensationalism for the sequels. Yeah, <laughs> Hellraiser. <laughs> yeah, there's only so many places you can go with it, trying to keep it fresh. But uh, seeing it from the kids' point of view, seeing uh, one of them, we assume, is being groomed, but it turns out they're actually doing it to play him off his brother mm-hmm. and therefore make him the evil little shit out of the two of them. Well, yeah, they, they very clearly say one of the kids is good and the other one's yeah. bad. And this is, it is thanks to Sinister 2 that made me perhaps speculate that in Sinister 1, Bagul had chosen the son first and then moved on to the daughter instead. Right, this is one of my least favourite things about the film, right? I agree that the switcheroo's quite nice. It is kind of unexpected. But Dylan doesn't, at the beginning, Dylan doesn't have a particularly clear motivation for hanging out with the ghost kids anyway, right? But if he doesn't have a motivation, at least he's getting slowly seduced by them. Zach decides to kill his entire family (laughs) out of jealousy because he wants to be friends with the ghost instead. Like, it just didn't make any sense as a character journey. But he's not watching the videos but he, but it's, so instead his motivation is, well, we're speaking to my brother, right? So I'm going to kill <laughs> oh, yeah, all of them. It's, it's so like, petty. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, like the things I can believe the idea of a kid doing something stupid for a petty reason. When you're having a kid murder his entire family because he wants to be special and hang out with the ghost children who already look like twats, right? What are you doing here? You could look at it that way, but... Looking back at the first film, you would not expect that little girl to suddenly turn around and dismember her parents, would you? It's, That's true. That's true. <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's a bit ambiguous, but I, I think they've done it from this point of view just to not retread that same path, really. Mm-hmm. I think it's fundamentally the same story as Sinister mm-hmm. One, but it, it, their angle is different that they're taking this time around. It's why I think it would have been more interesting if it was actually just Dylan, if we're just watching someone get gradually corrupted here. You know, because the idea of like essentially be standing in for a kid getting in with the wrong crowd. And instead, like the brother's rivalry, it just seems so melodramatic and just a little bit OTT. If a brother is just getting so pissed off that his, his bro has new friends and he wants to fit in with the friends. I mean, maybe what they needed, because uh, they do have one line of dialogue to explain all this, and Clint's like, ah, he's like me, and that's the setup yeah. for why he suddenly just goes absolutely psychotic, because Clint is such an over-the-top knob in this. <laughs> I mean, oh, his scenes are the funniest. I mean, I think the problem with... He's meant to be an abusive man, and his scenes are not supposed to be funny, but eat your mashed potato, and he's bragging to... Deputies, former deputies, so and so, so and so, formerly known as the deputy, <laughs> he says, 
I'm off to bang my wife. Yeah, that's it. Get off my property, wife. Fuck my wife. The best, the best life of a Yeah, yeah. What was good about uh, so-and-so was um, early on when they, tried, they got uh, state troopers around to take the kids away, and Officer so-and-so knew how to handle them and get rid of them. And that was like, that works with his backstory that he would know sort of the industry speak for, mm. you know, law enforcement, get off yeah, this woman's that, that property. That was probably one of his better moments as well. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. fr- from a performance point of view, you could see it in his face that he was shitting himself whilst yeah. you know, <laughs> trying to... Putting on a brave face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was, he, he's a very thin man. And the, the state trooper was a very fat man. Who would win in that fight? <laughs> Probably the straight trooper who would just land on him like a sumo wrestler. Uh, he's a good actor, uh, James Ranson, I believe his name is. He's um, he's Ziggy and the Wire is what where we'd know him from, and uh, he was also, I believe, he was Eddie in uh, It's Chapter Two. You know, so he's been in quite a few in a few things. Decent performance. I kind of felt like it's interesting bringing him back, having someone who knows. But the split attention meant that you're essentially watching the same film that you just watched, whilst also having somebody else who's who's seen the first film as well trying to interfere with the plot of the second. Mm. And like it's, it's like yeah. commit to this one way or the other. Like you either have him running around and nobody believes him, or you ha- or you don't include him at all. But you said you've got this kind of mishmash of like the kids' story just halting the momentum whilst also going in a direction that we vaguely know, and uh, him just kind of farting around at the sides. Like, uh, Clint and uh, Clint's also one of my least favorite things with this. With Clint, you could take his entire subplot out of uh, trying to get access to his kids, and it wouldn't actually if, if impact the story one little jot, mm. which you couldn't do with the first film. The first film... You needed all the domestic stuff in it because that directly impacted the main story. You know, with his obsession of writing this book, the uh, tensions with his with his wife, they're moving into the house. It's essential to get the story going. And this one here, Clint doesn't need to be there. That entire marital story doesn't need to be there for the story to function. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I just saw it as an easy excuse for one of the kids to be an arsehole. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that, there's that. There's also, I suppose, they're introducing real-world tension in a way that there is no tension between uh, the two leads of this film in the same way that there was with Ethan Hawke and his wife in the first film. By the way, I just want to point out, Rutabaga, that, which I think David has since Googled, is some sort of fruit, mm. but that was the key word that the mother says to her two sons to run Oh, yeah. suspicious which doesn't come up again and it's just such a there, there's going to be a backstory for that and I don't know what it is you know, I like that again they managed to do a linkage to uh, to money as being the issue here again uh, you know when we're in the supermarket and you got quite a nice little bit where the kids put in like four cereal boxes hmm. and she's like look we can't afford all the cereal yeah. Back. But I've got to say, if uh, my kids were acting like fair little bastards in the supermarket, they wouldn't be choosing their own breakfast cereal. Get what they're giving. <laughs> and also, there's one other scene, and this is during one of the big exposition dumps where dialogue's been fired out fast, rapid, with the air of urgency. It's not a word you hear often. Iconological. Mm. 
I got brought up during one of the rapid fire exposition dumps and just feel sorry for the actor that was forced to say the word <laughs> iconological with a sense of urgency. What, what do you guys reckon is the best scene in this film? Because I reckon it's a bit with the torch, where when Vino turns the torch on, the kids multiply each time. That was a really quite cool little visual. That was actually yeah. all right, that bit, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty neat. I, I quite liked the uh, climax as well. Where, uh, Me too. Where they're, where they're chasing the family through the cornfield and then into the house. I thought that was done pretty well. And then we see like all the ghost mm. kids interfering and uh, throwing all the stuff off the shelves like, around the house, giving it a haunting kind of vibe as well. That, that I, whilst, I mean, it's a horror film. At no point in this film was I ever, say, scared. But I actually did quite enjoy the sort of who could see the ghost children and who can't. And yet you know what the ghost children are doing because they're mm. just messing the place up. They're just flipping the table. Everything they can get their hands on, they're messing with it. Another thing I want to quickly uh, bring up here, the director. So Scott Derrickson didn't come back to a director's one. We have uh, Kieran Foy instead. Now, Kieran Foy, if you guys have seen the movie Citadel, really good. So when I first heard he was going to be doing this one, I thought, oh, that's quite cool. Citadel was ace. Uh, the only thing I've seen by him since was uh, Eli, which was straight to oh, uh, straight yeah. to Netflix, and it, it was all right as well. You know, it's uh, as much as I've criticised this film, and I really don't think this is a good movie. I don't think that he's like some hack or anything like that. In fact, I wonder if maybe part of the problem was that we see this quite often. You've got like a uh, a director who does like an independent, independent horror film and then they end up getting hired to do something much bigger. In fact, a really good example of this would be the uh, uh, the recent Firestarter film where we had uh, Keith Thomas doing Firestarter. Now with uh, Keith Thomas, people might remember him from The Vigil, which is a really good, really scary horror film. And then, you know, he's doing this studio one. Mm. So... I wonder if maybe that was what was happening with Kieran Foy here, because you know he, he, he in his small film in uh, in Citadel, I think he really showed something. Yeah, I mean, was Derrickson ever meant to be taking the reins on this one at all? Because it, what it did come out around the time he would have been making Doctor Strange, so would that have? Yeah, I mean, to my knowledge. To my knowledge, he was never planned to be the director for it. Right. But, you know, I mean, the thing that because he was a writer on it, then we, you, he must have had some connection to the yeah. material. But, yeah, it just kind of feels all quite rushed. I'm wondering how much of this was kind of studio interference, maybe. Oh, I imagine they'd be wanting to capitalize on the brilliant film they'd had prior to it. You know, mm. as soon as possible as well so hey, on the flip side of that at least we got a nicely running time out of it and it really didn't outstay oh, yeah. its welcome <laughs> <laughs> I know that's true that's true so a mere 90 minutes I reckon with uh, with Bagul here it's interesting that the kids and actually Clint as well you know they're probably the main antagonists again like Bagul kind of feels a bit like a supporting villain in his own film yeah I did feel like the character definitely interfered a bit more in this one as well, though, because mm. it, it felt more like a, just a malevolent presence before. Didn't actually do anything other than provide a couple of jump scares, whereas here, it actually interfered with the, the goings-on. So 
Um, again, it, I don't know if that's because we're seeing it from the kids' point of view this time or whether they just wanted to involve this scary monster a bit more. I think it comes down to that earlier, you can only do a mystery film in this kind of yeah. genre once. And uh, you know, the mystery is up, but Bagul, he's not like, it's not like Freddy or Jason where he's going to be killing people. All he can really do is possess people, I guess. Mm. A bit like if you're doing a sequel to The Ring, then you're like, oh shit, well what do we do? Because if, she, if her MO is she comes out of the TV a week after someone watches the video, then how do we build a sequel around this? Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I think in a way the, the project was kind of doomed from the start. Yeah, the kids are the kids are more vulnerable. It's building up the universe and stuff. But Bagul just kind of... Yeah, he just sort of seemed to be there a lot of the time. I, I, I just somewhere, somewhere in the background, not being particularly threatening and not being hugely interesting. It um, it works as a really good one-off film, but it does not lend itself to franchising at all. No, absolutely not. I'll tell you a really unintentionally funny bit. If you rewatch this film, look out for this. Got a bit where they're uh, in the house. Courtney looks out the window, and then Clint's car pulls up. And there's a really delayed reaction from her, where it's like, car pulls up, she's like, oh! <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, that's, uh, that's weird if that was the best take for you. <laughs> I mean, this is going to be a weak defense of that scene, but this may be waiting for members of the audience that maybe aren't quite paying attention, like everyone has to get on board before her reaction joins <laughs> where the audience are at. I mean, she should have been horrified. The second she saw that vehicle, she should have been suspicious. I mean, maybe what, yeah. I guess what you do is like you have dangerous music. You know, you see a car coming up. Dun, dun. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> oh, the Jaws theme tune. Yeah. Fuck it. Either of you guys got anything else you want to add on Sinister Part 2? Uh, no, nothing really. I mean, as, a, as we've already said, it was a tough act to follow. I think they've done the best with what they had. And for me, I thought it was pretty decent. I will add that the tone and the mood from the first film is just it's not quite there. And this time around, the found footage stuff I found to be boring. But it was also, you, know, you remember the soundtrack in the first film, and there's a different one playing for each of the found footage sequences. And it's really haunting and, and gripping and... It's just not there in this film well, at all. Well, th- th- they added um, an, an extra layer of depth to that with the record player add-on to the projector this time, didn't they? Oh, I quite like yeah. that. Yeah, they've joined the hipster revolution. But the, I would still argue that the music, the soundtrack of the first film was still better than this one. Oh, yeah. Even absolutely. with the no, gramophone. Th- there's no doubt about that. I think, and there's probably... The reason why it's not as good because mm. they had that rubbish contraption. Yeah, so. I would still argue. I would say that I think the introduction of the audio recordings, of which there were three in Norway, um, that bit to me felt like sequel bait oh, for definitely. the third film, which we haven't. Don't think we'll ever get. Now. Yeah, I can't imagine this franchise having much of the uh, having much of the future, really. How about yourself, Jim? You, you, would you would you turn out for Sinister Free? Uh, I don't know. I guess it depends what route they go down with that as well. I mean, I would definitely be open to it. I mean, I've watched countless horror sequels that are absolutely substandard to mm. 
absolutely dog shit to be fair. <laughs> I'll, I'll agree with I mean, we've all watched uh, 10 Hellraiser films and everything. <laughs> so I'll, I'll give anything a chance. Mm. So to finish off on this one, let's uh, let's do our star ratings. Uh, Alistair, what's your star rating for Sinister 2? Two. Two, because star one, there is good continuity. There is an effort to try and tell something original in a universe where essentially the first film has covered it well enough. It's good to see so-and-so again. It, um, I can't give any more than a two. <laughs> I think I'm with you on that one. I, I, before we talked about this, I was kind of at one star level, but I think I've talked myself up to it too. I think it, I think we're right. Like it's, it's ambition over achievement that we're getting here. Yeah. But at the same yeah. time, you know, you think about how difficult it would be to do a satisfying sequel. And I am glad we didn't just go down the same route again. I just really didn't like one they chose. I think in forfeiting the moral ambiguity and forfeiting the conflict between the leads, you just lose it to this kind of soap opera like uh, you take my kids sort of plot, which doesn't really advance the main story anyway. And then this kind of um, goth with the, with the kids of going, oh, I'm jealous of my brother, so I'm going to kill him and, and my mum and dad. Right? It just, yeah, it didn't really, really do much for me. This film in particular does, it wants you to view a child as a villain mm. in a way that I don't think is very healthy. Well, I mean, the thing is, we've got a tradition of, like, children, again, children of the corn being the obvious comparison of Reeve, for like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a farm farm uh, place, lots of corn, you know, you've got a, a local child cult led by a slightly posh, well-spoken kind of kid uh, with Isaac in Children of the Corn Part 1. I've not seen Children of the Corn, but when I've seen children being portrayed as villainous, there's always, say, a get-out, mm. in the sense of Village of the Damned, they were all possessed. That type of thing. Yes, whereas this one, no, the kid's just a twat. He just goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. he just goes, he goes, <laughs> yeah, no I would have yeah. hang with the cool kids. <laughs> but if, yeah. If Bagul was not there, he would still be a bullying asshole. <laughs> Jim, how many stars are you going to give this one? Uh, yeah, despite the inconsistencies and all the uh, uh, quite terrible points you've uh, just highlighted there, I'm going to go and say three and a half. Because uh, oh I still enjoyed it. I, wow! Yeah, it, it's it's the golden ninety minutes, so it didn't outstay its welcome. What I was watching was entertaining enough, so I've I I found it a pretty good follow up. And I just want to go onto the end, which we didn't discuss, where Gore took away the kid anyway, despite the fact that he didn't successfully kill all members of his family. Mm-hmm. Does that then? negate the point that they have to kill people or does it just make him less delicious when he's eaten oh, by the goal later <laughs> I think you've just stumbled across a plot hole sir oh uh, yeah another it should have been different it should have been like the, the black coat's daughter where Bagul abandons the, the kid and he's like distraught at uh, the abandonment of this punk uh, rock villain man the black coat's daughter is a good one big fan yeah, definitely should all watch The Black Coat Star. Now, speaking of uh, films you should watch, let's go to the list.
Nice. Are you fucking ready for the list? <laughs> what I have in front of me here is Den of Geek have listed the 13 best Bloomhouse horror movies. This was as of November 2020. Now, to be fair, there's actually not much more than uh, 13 Bloomhouse horror films. That seems like more than the amount of films I'm familiar with from Bloomhouse. But essentially, where I guess the fun of this comes down to uh, just chatting about the movies here, (laughs) talking about the order... Well, we say sinister. Is sinister on there? Sinister is on there. What what number do you reckon? Do you reckon this would be the, out of the Ooh, thirteen? Do you reckon right. this is going to be higher for number six, or do you reckon it'll be lower for number six? I reckon it'll be fairly high up. It's higher. a pretty great film. So. It is turned into Bruce Forsyth's player cards, right? <laughs> I'm going higher. I'm going higher. It is number six. So yeah, it's oh, top half basically. Okay. Uh, yeah. So what else do we reckon? What other blue mouse ones um, do we like? Was there, uh, is Malignant one of those? Uh, Malignant was not out when this list was made. Ah, um, okay. Actually, is Malignant even Bloomhouse? I, I don't know. Someone Google that in the background. It, um, it, has, the, it has the Bloomhouse feel to it. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's not on there, no. But what, what, what else do, you reckon, do we reckon might be there? No, I, I don't know if I'm getting these confused with Platinum Dunes as well, because aren't they... Didn't Bloomhouse evolve from that? Eventually, <laughs> uh, I believe it did. By the way, I did check in the background. Malignant is indeed a Bloomhouse film, but it's not on there. Mm. Okay, um, it's the um, Conjuring and Annabelle films. Uh, they are not. No. No. Okay. Yeah. Very surprising. Although I will say, Insidious and its sequels will have to be on there, there given the, the crossover they were planning to do in Sinister. Insidious yeah. is on there. Um, how many Insidious films do you reckon are in the top thirteen? Uh, all three. Oh, there's four. Those are four. Not, yeah, that's uh-huh. the last key. <laughs> I'm um, behind the times. There is actually only one Insidious film in the top thirteen, and the that does. One? Yep. It, do you <laughs> yeah. reckon it? Do you reckon it finishes high? Uh, I would say so. It's uh, pretty yes. popular. It finishes it's higher at, than six. It finishes at number a uh, number three. So yes, mm. uh, it finishes higher than Sinister. I think Sinister is a better film than Insidious. I think Insidious the second half just kind of nosedives, but fair is fair. Uh, anything else you want to mention here? You know, I've seen quite a few, but I'm getting my studios mixed up now. <laughs> You're going to have to give me some hints. Well, okay, I'll tell you what, number 13. This, I think, should be much higher than it is. This is a horror film about a deaf woman, and it's a home invasion movie I can only be talking about. Oh, I've heard of this one. I forgot the name of it. It's a really good film. It is. It's Hush. That's By uh, good old Mike Flanagan. So uh, Gerald's Game, Haunting of, Haunting of Hill House, Oculus. Yeah, uh, Mike Flanagan, good director. This is one of his better movies. So, uh, yeah. Next up, at number 12, it's a bit like Groundhog Day. Uh, happy Death Day. Yes. Or, or is it Happy Death Day <laughs> one, to you? One and two. Don't <laughs> I actually really enjoy those films. Happy Death Day to you is not on here, but Happy Death Day is, which I think Happy Death Day is fantastic. I think it's really funny, really, really good uh, central performance here. And it's a film that is happy to have fun with its own premise. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, it gets quite creative with it as well. The second one didn't really work much for me it's uh it introduced the second one's not on the list by the way but 
like they brought in quite an intriguing thing of this parallel universe. But what I wanted to see is you go, right, Jessica Roth can play herself twice here because there's another version of her that's now woken up in the universe where like she doesn't have uh she doesn't have an alive parent and stuff like that, you know, who's she's also in a, in a new place, but she doesn't have the have the understanding of her being two universes, whereas Tree that we follow does. So yeah, they missed they missed a trick. Next up on this list, so it is a movie by M. Night Shyamalan. It's a found footage one. Oh, the, the cottage with the, the elderly visit. parents. Yes, the, the visit, visit, it's called, the yes. I, I really enjoyed this one as well. I thought it was, uh, thought, thought it was quite banging, actually. Uh, good little premise, good acting, decent film. The Invisible Man, is that? Uh, the Invisible oh. Man is on there. Do we reckon that'll be high? Do we reckon it'll be low? Oh, that's pretty decent. I would say that's top six. Probably. Uh, yeah, I think Invisible Man is absolutely fantastic, and it is a very high one. It is number two is the Invisible Man. Oh. And, the, and that was a really good example of how you do a political subtext in a film that still works on its own merits, even if you don't mm. pick up on it. You know, if we're going, okay, we're literalizing the idea of women having invisible threats that sometimes go beyond detection, and we're basically a film around this quite blunt metaphor, but at the same time, you can just still enjoy it as just being a really kick-ass uh, horror film mm. anyway. I, yeah, I loved it. I think it's I I fantastically acted, really well directed, so that Lee Winnell yeah. can, uh, can deliver. Next up, this one is a found footage. It's a film that pretty much only has two characters in it, and it only has about one second of on-screen violence, but at the same time, it is utterly fucking terrifying. What film am I talking about? Is it Paranormal Activity? No, of all that's still to come. No, I'm talking <laughs> about uh, Creep. You guys seen Creep? I, I haven't. And uh, to be honest, I haven't seen Paranormal Activity either, so if you would need me to hand in my gun and badge at the <laughs> end of this. <laughs> uh, uh, Creep you is... Keep your gun. Creep's really good. The, uh, the, the movie's like this, uh, the serial killer who advertises on Craigslist. He wants someone to... He says he's dying, so he wants someone to make a video about him, basically. I believe it was all improvised, just from a very rough outline. And, uh, yeah, it's really disturbing. It's sometimes. Really, really good fun. And uh, some good black comedy in there. The sequel is okay, but at the same time, the first one really is something special. Whatever year that showed at Fright Fest, that was the best one I saw that year. Mm. Number nine. So, number nine is by a director we previously mentioned, which is Lee Winnell. It's one of his other movies. I don't know if you can necessarily call this a horror, but horror fans will like it. It's a science fiction film that he made. What the heck am I talking about? Uh, it's on the tip of me to... Ah, uh, it's gone. No. <laughs> Alistair, you, you know this one? No. Right, no. Upgrade. Yes, because yes, that film fucking rules. <laughs> it's a really good film. Very fucking good film. I saw that at Fright Fest. Absolutely loved it. Um, yeah. Number eight. This is a movie that we have talked about on the show. It was not the feature presentation. Instead, its sequel was a feature presentation. This came out in 2018, and it is the... 11 film wait 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 yes 11 film in its series what halloween. am i talking about? yeah halloween <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, said, I've moaned about this film before i'm not going to do it again but uh yeah it's all right number <laughs> number number seven just missing the uh the good half year i think this is a really decent movie uh this is a fantastic performance by james mcavoy 
who plays 24 different characters. What the heck am I talking about? Glass. <laughs> no, not Glass. <laughs> the good one. Split. Split. Split, yeah. yes. Although I have to say I actually quite enjoyed Glass, but, you know. Yeah, you glass, know, Sinister like... Tooth. You know. <laughs> Jim, you're, you're, you're counterintuitive. <laughs> Next up, Sinister, already mentioned that. Number five, this is a film about a haunted mirror. Oculus. Yes, Oculus. And I really like, uh, what's her name, Car- Karen, Karen uh, Gillen. Karen yeah, Gillen, yeah. Uh, she's, in, uh, she's in Doctor Who, isn't she? Mm-hmm. And she's in the MCU. Uh, she's Nebula mm-hmm. in the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, is she the companion in Doctor Who for that season or something? She's companion to the 11th Doctor, Matt Smith's one. And is she is she is she good in it? She's she's pretty good. She was uh, probably the best companion that the Stephen Moffat era had. In this one, I thought she really carried the film. Oculus, it uh, takes a wee bit to get going. I think when we reach the last act, that feels like a film that Flanagan really wanted to make. You know, it's when we start getting like the sort of yeah. the mental breakdown part of it. But until then, although she's got a dodgy accent at points, I reckon she carries the movie. Next up, we are coming to possibly the most famous film that Bloomhouse have brought out. This is a found footage film. What the heck am I talking about? Is it the one I mentioned earlier? Paranormal, Paranormal Activity. activity. <laughs> it certainly is. Uh, Paranormal Activity. We've not seen, so not going to bit. Next up, number three was uh, Insidious. We mentioned that one earlier on. And then number two was The Invisible Man. So that means that we only have one other movie left. What movie do you reckon I'm talking about there? I'm going to say Get Out. Yes! Get Out is the number one best horror film that Bloomhouse have ever made, according to denofgeek.com. Were you big on this movie? Yeah. I've I've got to say, when I first saw it, obviously it was during all the hype for it. So I think I was slightly underwhelmed, even though I still thought it was really good. But upon rewatch, I was like, yeah, I, I, I get it. <laughs> it's uh, it, oh, it's such an unsettling, creepy film, but doesn't necessarily feel like a scary film. Uh, it, it, it just it's something completely different. It's something really fresh, I suppose. Yeah, so I mean, I actually possibly preferred Us as a film, but there's a reason that Get Out is always going to be remembered as the better film, just because it made such a statement out the gates as a, mm. as a kind of, as a, as like a blueprint of this is what Jordan Peele can do. This is a director to watch. I think get out was a really good debut. What do you reckon Alistair is get out? The, uh, do you reckon it's the best Bloomhouse film? So I think it's, you know, I think invisible man is number two, get out is number one. That's a pretty good, pretty good. I talk. enjoy that film. I did. It's, um, it's certainly one of these sort of thought provoking movies as well. And the sort of, not the obnoxious over-the-top racism, but the sort of subtle prejudices that people might have that carried over. It was, it was a social commentary as well as a horror, and I think it played into that uh, really quite well. Yeah. Uh, just in terms of a few others that we did not mention, in the CDS sequels, they didn't come up. True for Dare didn't come up. It was shit. <laughs> not, none, of the, uh, none of the Purge films came up, which, uh, I don't know, I quite liked the... Uh, Quite liked the film, the the first purge, and by the first purge I mean the fourth purge. Um, and uh, with a forever purge, we have come out after this list was made. Uh, the craft legacy didn't come up. 
didn't like it anyway. Uh, the Hunt didn't come up, didn't like that film either. Freaky didn't come up. It was good. May may come out a month after this list was made, but Freaky, Vince Vaughn was really funny in it. And uh, we also didn't get Ma here. We didn't get the vigil mentioned. And uh, we also did not get uh, Fantasy Island, which, uh, yeah, never watched Fantasy Island. I've heard it was a bad one. Fantasy (laughs) Island, that is. It was was the vigil, the um, Jewish... Yeah, that's right. Film. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember seeing that at the cinema. I, I, I didn't realize that was a Bloomhouse film. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was good. It was. It made a nice change to see a religious based haunting film that isn't, you know, a, a Christian one. Yeah, you know, usually when you see that sort of thing, it's all Satan and all that sort of shit. But it, mm. it it really did make a nice change to see it focus on a different faith when looking at you know possessions and haunting and so on. Yeah, because uh, what was your was there ever a Jewish uh, horror one? I think it was actually called The Possession. It was um, done by Ghost House, and yeah, The Vigil was certainly a better movie than that. Lords of Salem didn't make the list. I thought Lord Lords of Salem was ace. Uh, the Bay, which I, I don't believe that they made the Bay, but I think they distributed the Bay. Um, and the River, which was uh, an old TV show. It's a four-parter, found footage thing. Um, so anyway, so that is the best of Bloomhouse. And uh, folks, thank you very much for listening in, just chatting about Sinister. Uh, again, two movies which uh very hugely in quality, but hey, it's another franchise down. And who knows, maybe we'll get the crossover between Sinister and Insidious at some point <laughs> in the distant future. Anyway, it's a uh, good night from myself, and it's a good night from these guys. Yeah, good Good night. night. Catch you later. For news, views, and reviews, check out horrorcultfilms.co.uk. by White Bat Audio.